the farming program with Araquit Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. Engagement with sustainability, like Apollo 13's failure, is not an option. The words of Leaf Chief Exec David Webster at this week's Lincolnshire Farming Conference. Why not? Weather patterns changing is pretty evident to everybody. All of the evidence which is coming out of government from the International Panel on Climate Change is saying that those trends are only going to escalate. How did this year's Yield Enhancement Network champion achieve his fantastic yields? The main thing is soil health. Over the last 10 years, I've increased my organic matter in my soil from 2% to now over 10%. Sean Sparling's crop walking, Ed and Alice review the markets. We'll see what the weather holds in store for us this week. And it seems all is not rosy between tenant, farmers and landlords. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Well, the snow didn't last, thankfully, although it was coming down heavily during the Lincolnshire Farming Conference, but was mostly gone by the time I drove home. This is the Farming Programme podcast for the 11th of February 2024 with more news and extended interviews going live every Sunday morning from 7. But of course you can listen anytime and pause, rewind and replay. Hello, I'm Steve Orchard. In the news this week, the EU has ditched plans to halve pesticide use by 2030 following farmer protests. The Commission has withdrawn its legislative proposal. It's also recommended that net emissions be reduced by 90% by 2040 compared to 2015 levels, but with the stipulation that agriculture would need to slash emissions by 30% from 2015 levels in order to comply. Farmers, as you're well aware, have been protesting across Europe. The head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said the issue of environmental regulations had become a symbol of polarisation. A new toolkit's been launched seeking to encourage small farms to take on apprenticeships. Lantra has launched this help for employers offering guidance on what an apprenticeship is, what's involved, and it breaks down the steps to take. Research by Lantra showed that although farmers see the benefits of employing apprentices, they often struggle to find practical information about this employment and training route. You can download the toolkit at lantra.co.uk. And the 8th Lincolnshire Farming Conference took place on Thursday. We'll hear from keynote speaker Leith's David Webster later, along with the other key speakers from the day. Now, it seems all is not rosy in the relationship between many tenant farmers and their landlords. The TFA, the Tenant Farmers Association, has surveyed its members with some disappointing results. TFA Chief Exec George Dunn is with us. Good morning, George. Why, firstly, was the survey carried out? Good morning, Steve. You and your listeners may be aware that in October 2022, we had a major report on the talented sector of agriculture, which had been written by Baroness Kate Rock, who was called the Rock Review. And one of the recommendations from that report was that DEFRA should consider the appointment of a new tenant farming commissioner to review the way in which relationships operate within the sector. DEFRA um, has decided that it didn't really want to take that recommendation forward immediately. What DEFRA wanted to do was to have another call for evidence to see whether or not there was a need for a commissioner, a need for the new role. And they have um, asked a number of organisations, including the Tenant Farmers Association, to do some work to provide that evidence. So the survey which we carried out was to inform the response that we were making to the call for evidence, which we put in earlier this week. 
So this is the evidence, and the evidence seems to be that things are maybe not quite rosy in the relationship between tenants and their landlords. Yeah, the survey covers 425 uh, tenant farmers who responded, and you know it does paint quite a bleak picture of the relationship between landlords and tenants. And I think what was most shocking for me was that 30% of respondents felt that they were being bullied or harassed by their landlords. And that percentage increased to 37% when people referred to landlords agents and landlords advisors. And, you know, no one should in this day and age should feel bullied or harassed um, and it's 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 completely unacceptable. So we we need to be rooting that out. But additionally, you know, seventy percent of the respondents said they didn't really have regular meetings with their landlords. Which again, in an environment where you would think that there was a need for ongoing dialogue and collegiality, that that would be part and parcel of people's experience. But it's it's clearly it's clearly not. So yeah, very concerning. Are there real serious underlying problems here, or is it a matter of communication? Do you think? Well, interestingly, we gave uh, people responding to the survey the opportunity to provide some free text comments. Over a quarter of those who responded took the opportunity to do so. And Steve, some of those comments were heart-wrenching when you when you read through them. And, and, and in many respects, they were more shocking than the statistics of the survey itself and people feeling that they were being treated unfairly or being treated with disrespect. And that's more than an issue of communication. That's people genuinely feeling that they were being treated as second-class citizens and it wasn't just at rent review or at tenancy end or on disputes about you know planning applications it's there seemed to be a general concern that that individuals didn't really feel that their relationships were on a reasonable footing so i i think it's a bit more than communication okay and there's obviously enough of a survey here to say that this is a proper general feeling it's not just a few you know like when you do see reviews on Facebook or on TripAdvisor and things like that, you tend to pick up the people there who've obviously got a bit of a gripe. Does this fairly represent the whole of the TFA sector as far as you're concerned? Well, obviously, you know, we didn't do a fully randomised survey of all of the tenants in the country, but this was freely available for anybody to complete we wanted to know the good as well as the bad, and we have had some people who have given us some good feedback um, in terms of their relationship with their landlords. You know, some of the comments about some of the institutional landlords where relationships have in the past been strained but are now uh, improving. So, you know, I can't say hand on heart that this is a fully randomised survey of the tenant sector of agriculture, but everybody's had an equal chance to put their thoughts in here, good or bad. And, uh, you know, what's come out of our results is 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 quite shocking. Mm. And you've put this together to support the potential uh, tenant farming commissioner uh, with DEFRA. What's the next stage? Do you think this is going to sway things? So, yes, this has gone as part of the response made by the TFA to the uh, call for evidence, which the government issued in November. Uh, the deadline was earlier this week, and um, that is now going to be considered by the newly established Farm Tenancy Forum, which is also in the process of putting together an industry code of practice to talk about conduct within the sector, which we hope will be uh, published before uh, April. 
the next step will be for the government to consider whether there is now sufficient evidence from what has been uh, submitted to it that, uh, that that they need to think about appointing a commissioner. Now, there are some suggestions that it might need primary legislation. Our view is, well, you could introduce a commissioner on a non-statutory basis, see if people are prepared to work with the commissioner, and if that works, then fine. If not, then consider legislation thereafter. But uh, but yeah, the next step is for the Farm Tenancy Forum and for DEFRA to consider whether there is sufficient evidence to proceed. And do you know when that might be? Well, the call for evidence, as I say, closed earlier in the week. The Farm Tenancy Forum already has quite a substantial amount of uh, work on its books. We're certainly not looking at weeks, more like months. Yeah, thanks for that interesting stuff. We'll keep an eye on it. And thank you, George Dunn from the Tenant Farmers Association for joining us on the farming programme this morning. Thanks, Steve. To the fields now, plenty of snowdrops and some snow the other day. Good morning, Sean Sparling. How are things looking now? Yes, morning, Steve. Just when you thought it was feeling a bit like spring, Thursday happened. It was just starting to dry up a bit for the first time in a month or two as well. We were daring to think drilling might go a little bit more widely than it has been. Then boom, wind, snow, rain, sleet, an inch and a half of rain or more for me since Tuesday, including a good bit of the white stuff. February, of course, can be a funny old month. February fill dike and all that. I usually average around 65 mil of rain for February at home although having said that we were spoilt last February when I only took eight so with that stuff we've had this week it's a wet old lot that's going to take a little bit of drying once again but I suppose better we get it now than in late March early April plenty of drills out on the land this week getting some more wheat in before the weather broke Tyne drills coming into their own once again in these challenging conditions. A bit of patching up of several wheat fields going on too early this week. That should catch up those crops with three or four leaves fairly easily as the spring progresses and warms up. And remember, as I've said before, of the most common varieties on the recommended list, Illuminate, Redwold, Blackstone, Typhoon, Champion, Glean, Cranium, all pretty well happy to drill into the middle of February. Skyfall, Bruin, Bearstow, Swallow, later than that towards the end of the month. Now, get any home safe seed tested with some urgency if you haven't already done it. Spring barley happily will drill until April. And as with all seed rates, work them out. Don't just have a guess. It's 1,000 seed weight multiplied by target plants per square metre divided by percentage germination multiplied by 100 plus percentage field losses. And field losses can be as high as 50% in some cases. I've seen them even higher than that in spring barley, which of course you must never try to maul in. It's not a crop that will forgive you for doing that. Last year proved that. As with all spring drillings, seedbed conditions must not be underestimated. And after this wet, those percentages of likely field losses need to be realistic and factored in accordingly. Spring barley, you're aiming for 300, 325 established plants or so per square metre. Higher rates on the dodgy seedbed, blackgrass sites, of course. Spring wheat goes on heavier than spring barley. And do speak to your advisor about playing the percentages when it comes to spring wheat seed rates in particular. It doesn't tiller as readily as spring barley, so do account for that. Spring wheat will happily drill up to late March though and you're aiming for 325 to 375 established plants per square metre. Higher seed rates for late drilling, dodgy seed beds, black grassland. Spring oats, bit early yet. Soils as cold as they are, oats like a little bit of warmth so they can be in, up and away. They do not like laying about in a cold wet bed. I think I might be an oat thinking about it. Um, aiming for 275 to 325 plants per square metre established. Lower populations on the more 
fertile stuff and of course spring beans you can drill those from now really once conditions allow i suppose up to the end of march aiming for 35 plants a square meter on the heavy soils 50 or so on the lighter soils but with the wet conditions out there again now that's all probably a week or so away yet i'd imagine but do take your opportunities as they rise obviously and don't miss out spring barleys and winter wheats were going in across the county in the early part of last week quite happily before that rain so once conditions allow do look to be getting the first dose of nitrogen onto the oilseed rape along with sulfur all crops are going to be short of nitrogen and sulfur in particular through leaching after the wet autumn less so i suppose if you've applied organic manures to these fields that has good levels of sulfur in it but once again it matters when you applied that and how much rain you've had since then and you'll have had at least 600 650 mil across it i'd guess if you applied it in august do bear in mind the sulfate needs to be in the rate ready to work by stem extension it takes four or five weeks to get into the plant ready to work and stem extension will happen around the end of march early april so now's pretty much the time for that to go on you also want to be putting about 40 kilos or so of nitrogen across your wheats it's still very early though of course soils are still cold soil temperature has hit 5.2 degrees in the sunshine and 12 degree heat of a few days ago but they dropped back closer to 4 4.2 now with the return of the cold stuff and the frost by night but that's why going on with little and often this season and for the time being makes the most sense so don't risk bunging on a great big slug of nitrogen and then it washing away any nitrogen that was applied immediately before that wet stuff came on thursday and friday this week will have made a bit of a whooshing sound as it washed past those mediocre and poor root systems because it's not really growy enough weather for it to have been sucked up by these still sleepy wheats so do account for any of those losses in your calculations on more applications going forward put 60 to 70 kilograms per hectare onto the seed bed of spring wheats and spring barleys as you drill them as well there can't be anything left in there in the seed beds after 600 and odd mil of rain since september and think about nutrition in general on all of the crops out there sulfur is going to need applying preferably in that first dose although crops will produce the enzyme malate which does mimic and can replace an element of the sulfate to a degree but it won't produce enough malate to offset such high losses and then you're going to need to think about the zinc the copper manganese magnesium on all of these crops with foliar applications as the spring comes and the temperatures improve oilseed rape starting to show its true colors as well a lot more cabbage stem flea beetle larvae out there in the stems than we could find even before christmas a few weeks ago they've tunneled down into the hearts of these roots now down well below the crown and many crops are suddenly looking a bit dodgy starting to go backwards unfortunately still a lot of good looking crops around but do assume nothing get that sharp knife out and cut them open better to know what you're dealing with now so that you're prepared in case there's an issue in a few weeks time and keep those fingers crossed pigeons absolutely hammering any rate they come across out there there must have been five or six thousand of the things whirling about near metheringham on wednesday afternoon that many can soon make a mess and trust me they did on my rape so we're under starters orders but february can be an incredibly challenging month as it's already showing so let's see what the next seven days bring more from our crop doctor, Sean Sparling, on the farming programme next week. Thanks as ever, Sean. Still to come this week, we'll check the markets and weather, hear how this year's Yield Enhancement Network champion did it, and get the thoughts of Leaf Chief Exec David Webster, keynote speaker at the Lincolnshire Farming Conference. The Farming Programme, with our equipped steel stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. 
You're listening to the Farming Programme podcast. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Steve Orchard. Achieving good yields from crops is a never-ending challenge with so much beyond the farmer's control. But where you do have control, how can you maximise what you produce from every hectare? Third-generation Lincolnshire farmer Mark Stubbs took the top prize in this year's Yield Enhancement Network Awards with some impressive winter wheat and spring barley crops. What varieties was he growing and how did he do it? So the winter wheat um, was uh, an LG skyscraper, which I grew down in the marsh, and that yielded me 16.6 tonnes to the hectare to give me gold. And also I won spring barley, um, which was Syngenta's laureate, um, which was grown on the Lincolnshire Wolds, and that yielded me 10.6 tonnes to the hectare. And I also won the gold awards for potential yields for both of those crops. That's quite an achievement. Congratulations. What's your secret? The main thing is soil health. So... Over the last 10 years, I've increased my organic matter in my soil from 2% to now it being over 10%. And how I've done that is I've used cover crops, which I'm wanting the rooting benefits from rather than the top fauna. And then I apply poultry manure and also farm manure as well. And when I'm mixing all of that together, it's giving me a really improved soil fauna and getting all the worms working properly and really giving me excellent soil health. Now, you're putting quite a bit on the soil. That must take you a lot of time. It must cost you a lot. You've got a fantastic yield from the crops. Does it all work out all right financially? Yes. So I've worked out with the poultry manure. With fertiliser prices as they are today, it works out probably costing me three times as much per hectare using the poultry manure to it if I used artificial fertiliser. But um, when I actually did this last year, it was fair, when fertiliser prices were really high, it worked out fairly well in comparison to each other. So for me, manures, I only price it for the N, P and K value in the manure and also the sulphur. As we all know, manures give us so many more metals and everything which really improves everything else in the soil. When you were drilling, you were quite a bit later. I know we had the problems with the weather last year, but you seem to have done a later drill and an early harvest. Yeah, so um, I always drill late because I have blackgrass trouble. So I always aim to start drilling third week of October, if possible. So for the winter wheat, I was actually a week late and it was um, around about the 10th of November when I drilled it because of the wet weather. But we got a window. We got it in really well. The weather was fairly warm, luckily, and it got away really well. And it surprised me that I was able to harvest it so early, but I literally got it just the day it turned ripe and it didn't lose any of the bushel weight, the hagbergs or anything. It was just perfect when I harvested it. If I left it a week later, I would have lost hagberg and bush weight and also that would have then affected my yield. I'm I'm glad this this year's weather and harvest has worked out well for somebody. Why did you get involved in the yield enhancement network in the first place? What does it give you? 
Right, so I originally joined um, seven years ago when they introduced oilseed rape because I've always been able to grow really good oilseed rape. So I thought, well, I'll enter it. And we didn't really do anything. And the first year I entered on oilseed rape, we came 13th in that because we didn't do anything. And then we learned from it what other things we did. And then after that, I was regularly getting gold, bronze and silver for my oilseed rape. And then I decided to start entering wheat as well because what we was learning from the Yield Enhancement Network is so much to do with soil health and nutrition. I was starting to improve my wheat yields as well, so I thought I'd enter it for winter wheat. And then last year, I realised I was doing a spring barley one, and the winners for spring barley last year was another Lincolnshire farmer. And I thought, well, I actually got a better yield than that, and I entered this, so I entered it this year for spring barley as well, knowing that I could get the good yields. So do you find that ability to benchmark useful comparing yourself to other farmers yes very useful because it makes you realize how much chemical and fertilizer spend you're doing um, because nutrition is so important now with the environment and everything like that because if you put too much nitrogen on nowadays you do get a yield deficit so there is just a sweet point of the amount of nitrogen to put on your crops nowadays and if you hit that sweet point right that's where you get the benefit from and you are drilling are you yes we're drilling um with a vertistat drill so i do a minimum cultivation so we do a primary cultivation straight after harvest with a pine disc cultivator and then just before we drill we'll glyphosate it all off and we'll go in with a shallow disc cultivator followed by the Verstap drill. Well, there's a lot to learn there, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us on the farming programme and congratulations on the award. Great to see your uh, hard work rewarded. Right, thank you very much. Last Thursday saw another excellent Lincolnshire Farming Conference chaired by friend of the farming programme Kelly Hewson Fisher with the theme and title Future Farming Opportunities, Biodiversity and Carbon. Opening the day was Shropshire Farm Manager and co-founder of the Green Farm Collective. I had a chat with the speakers after their presentations and I asked Michael firstly, what is the Green Farm Collective? So the Green Farm Collective is a company started and run by farmers, basically trying to plug the financial gap that farmers are going to be left with uh, once BPS fully disappears. So we're focused on premium carbon sales, premium biodiversity sales and then also the sale of regeneratively farmed produce. In your presentation, you talked a lot about a a carbon calculator and you've chosen one, Trinity Sandy. There are others available. How do you go about actually choosing that one? Yeah, so we chose Trinity Sandy because we believe it's the most accurate calculator out there. And actually our primary reason for using a calculator is to be able to legally trade our carbon and our biodiversity from the data that we put in. So we need the most accurate and the most legally robust calculator out there. Um, Trinity Sandy has got a scientific board of 47 people working behind it and it, it has uh, you know, the most robust legal credentials, we believe, for then trading the carbon. So that's why we've tr- chosen Trinity Sandy. How easy or difficult or time-consuming is it to actually start this process off, to actually get yourself a baseline so that you know where you are and where you're going? 
yeah, three years ago, it was very time consuming. Now, um, because technology has improved so much, if you're using any kind of farm software, it's really, really slick because all the, all the information from your software will seamlessly run. For, from my point of view, it runs from muddy boots into sandy. Um, I do still have to add some bits into it, but it's really not too arduous. And once you've done, once you've done, done it once, it's really, really very simple. And just how easy is it to trade surplus carbon? I mean, you've not actually got a physical lump of carbon in the barn. You've got a figure. How do you prove that you've got that? And how do you actually sell it? Yeah, I mean, the proving that you've got it is through the software. Uh, and then the way that, that I've sold carbon, and, and as I said, I've only done very small amounts so far, but the way I've done it is there is also a company called Trinity Natural Capital Markets, and they will do the trade for you. And... I will only trade with a business that I know and trust and that wants to buy the carbon from me. So the carbon deals that I've done are all a bit like we're sat here talking to each other, looking at the whites of our eyes. Uh, you know, I will trade with someone that I know and trust and I, and I, and I like and respect their, their business and what they're trying to do. I will pick and choose who I will trade with. Now you've managed to reduce your carbon output over the years. Farming as a whole is fairly neutral in terms of actually reducing its carbon. So how did you do it where others obviously haven't managed to do it? What was your process from having achieved a baseline, saying this is where we are now, what did you do to get the carbon down? Yeah, I mean, it, it, as I said, it started nine years ago. Uh, and every decision I made nine years ago was for the benefit of the business. So I knew I wanted to reduce my tillage. I knew I wanted to reduce my reliance on synthetic inputs. I knew I wanted to reduce my reliance on fossil fuels anyway because all those things made business sense and if i can do all those things and maintain yields obviously i'm onto a winner the improvement in quality of soil takes time um, and it's not just about going out and buying a direct drill actually you know the direct drill is probably seventh or tenth on the list of things that you that you should be doing there's so many pieces of that jigsaw puzzle be it cover crops be it using biology be it using compost all those sorts of things that you've got to put into the mix and one thing that really inspired me is we're on fairly sandy soils really drought prone can almost halve our yields in a, in a really droughty year i want to improve organic matter because organic matter is basically water holding capacity for every 0.1% you increase your organic matter you increase your water holding capacity by 16,000 litres per hectare I've increased our organic matter over a six-year period by 0.75% so you know that's over 100,000 litres of water holding capacity per hectare that we've gained um, so my farm is constantly becoming more drought resilient as well as capturing carbon and the other thing that links in is that Organic matter is the house and the food source for microbes. And when you consider that 85 to 90% of plant nutrient acquisition is microbially mediated, my head goes, okay, I want to make that soil as friendly to microbes as is possible so that my plants get all the nutrition they need so that I don't need to plaster them with synthetics. So it's a, it's a whole cycle and it's, a, it's all a win-win. And you've managed to wean yourself off or wean the farm off synthetics to a large extent? To a large extent, yeah. So we're no longer using insecticides. I haven't used insecticides in nine years. No longer using any kind of bag P and K. No longer having to lime. Our soil pHs are stable. Not using any plant growth regulations 
regulators. Last year, I used a fungicide on 10% of my wheat. The rest of the farm had no fungicides whatsoever. Uh, we're down to 150 kilograms to the hectare of nitrogen on our milling wheats, and I'm a firm believer that we can reduce that nitrogen even more. You know, my yields are actually getting better. You know, we had we're consistently hitting over 10 tons of the hectare on blocks of wheat this year, which is kind of, as I said earlier, pop the champagne kind of levels of yield on our farm. So yeah. And for those who are new at this, looking to get into it, looking to find out more, you actually have a workshop coming up this week, don't you? Oh, we do, yes, yeah. So on Thursday, the 15th, we've got uh, Dan Kitteridge uh, and Patrick Holford coming to speak. And then we've also got a uh, showing of the film Six Inches of Soil as well. So, uh, yeah, if you, if you search online for the Green Farm Collective uh, and you'll find that, find that workshop on there, it's held at Bishop's Wood in Staffordshire. Uh, there are still a few tickets remaining. So, uh, yeah, it'd be great to, great to see, see as many people along there as possible. All right, Michael, thank you. Thank you very much. Second speaker at the Lincolnshire Farming Conference on Thursday was Liz Bowles, Chief Exec of the Farm Carbon Toolkit, which is what, Liz? So the Farm Carbon Toolkit is an organisation that was set up by farmers, for farmers, in 2011. And we were very much set up to support farm businesses to understand their carbon footprint, because at that time, really, farmers knew nothing about greenhouse gas emissions or how to measure them. Um, So... That's what we were set up to do and we've got an advisory team who support farmers on farm to really understand their emissions and reduce them and also build carbon stocks in soils. But we also own one of the most popular carbon calculators used in the country. Right, talking about that, because there are numerous carbon Mm. calculators around, how does one choose Apart from the fact that yours will obviously be the best. obviously I'm biased. Um, What you have to do is look at them all, look to see how easy they are to use. You shouldn't underestimate the value of ease of use because you, you have to do it every year. So ease of use, transparency of their methodology. So can you see how the calculations have been done? And most calculators will have a page on their website that tells you what sources they've used to do their calculations. Then the other one might be the range of data that you want to put in. I mentioned that our calculator does include embedded emissions from capital items like tractors, machinery and buildings. So it's giving a more complete picture than some other calculators do. But what I would say is there's probably only three or four main calculators to choose from so yeah you you haven't got to spend ages not it's not like Trivago yet where you have to go on a a sort of a comparison website to in fact perhaps that might be the way to go I don't know but at at the moment it's not that difficult because if somebody is looking at doing this for the first time if they're new to this just how easy is it to start things off is it we're living in a world where we're filling forms in we're applying for this that and the other and farmers seem to be spending more time on the computer doing that than actually on a farm how much time is it going to take to create the baseline that will depend on the level of detail that the farmer wants to include so at the moment most farmers will do it as a they do it themselves so a self-assessment type approach and if they start with the most important sources of emissions and get that data in that will probably account for 70 percent of their total footprint then it's down to how complete they want their footprint to be how much digging they do to find the data the better the business records they have the better because if they if they can go to their accounting system and pull out 
all the fertilizers they've used so they can readily put the data in. Many calculators now have an ability to pull in data from other platforms and ours is no different. So at Farm Carbon Calculator, you can elect to pull data in from other platforms, which means as a farmer, and the typical one is spray records because, and I've done many a footprint for farmers, and there's an awful lot of sprays that a farmer will have used, probably goodness knows 20 30 40 sometimes and they all to do it completely accurately you have to put them all in but if you've already done it somewhere else you can press the button to say please move this data into my into this platform and then they that's it because there is a growing interest in this isn't there from supply chain from the people that you're selling the farmers selling their produce to there's more and more interest in this and there's going to come a stage where you're going to have to prove what you do to be able to sell your produce. Yes, I think there will come that time. There's certainly more interest and the reason there's more interest is that generally the retailers have signed up to the Science-Based Targets Initiative and have set a date by which they will get to some level of um, net zero. And that means they then have to influence down their supply chain because the majority of their total emissions sit at farm level. So that's why they are trying to get a handle on just what the level of emissions emanating from each of their supplier farms is. We're doing a lot of this in the UK. Yeah. Is the same happening the EU and beyond? Yes, it is happening in the EU and beyond to differing levels of completeness, I would say. And, but globally, there is a focus on making sure that we have got good standards to work to in terms of how the greenhouse gases are accounted for. But I would say in terms of the actual calculators, the UK is ahead of the game. Liz, just finally, where could somebody go for more information on the Farm Carbon Toolkit? We'll simply go to our website, farmcarbontoolkit.org.uk, and there's loads of information there. And you literally, within five minutes of typing in our address, you could be starting your footprint. Liz, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Finally, for today anyway, there will be more from the speakers at Thursday's Lincolnshire Farming Conference next week. Let's hear from keynote speaker, Leaf Chief Exec David Webster, who we met on the programme, you may remember, when he took over from the late Caroline Drummond last year. David's headline was, Engagement with sustainability is not an option. David, why do you feel that way? I think there are a number of reasons which I would say that, but I think, especially in Lincolnshire, that the reality of weather patterns changing is pretty pretty evident to everybody. All of the evidence which is coming out of uh, government from the International Panel on Climate Change is saying that, that those trends are only going to escalate from 2030, but within the next decade, we will officially pass through the 1.5 degree warming mark. That's where parts of the world are going to become completely un- uninhabitable and the area of land for food production is going to decrease quite significantly. So things are going to change. So we, environmental engagement is, I don't think it's an optional consideration anymore. See, to many of us, 1.5 degrees doesn't really sound an awful lot. You know, if, if the temperature outside is 10 or 11 and a half, do we really notice it? Is it that important? Well, I, I think there's a difference there between climate and weather. The climate is the average movement in the temperatures, but what, what you can see and what we've seen in Lincolnshire is it results in very, very much more erratic weather patterns. So as the air warms, it holds more moisture, so we get more uh, rain. That rain obviously has to go somewhere. That's resulted in flooding in, I think it's four out of the last five years, you've had major floods in Lincolnshire. I think that the problem is we're going to see more and more of that. And now let's be really honest as well, the UK is probably better placed than many other countries to withstand this. So it's not just what's happening in the 
the in the UK and in this area. It's, it's going to be what happens globally to the area which is available for us to produce food and where is that food going to come from. And those that's the, where the changes become much more pronounced. I'm afraid to say I think that's going to happen in an uncomfortably short time frame. Spain is one example, isn't it? It's had dreadful problems uh, in, the, in the other way in terms of temperature. Yes. And this is putting certainly European, if not global, food production at risk. Yes, yes, Spain, Spain would be another example, although, I mean, Spanish farmers, again, are some of the best in the world, particularly in terms of their water management systems now, but we need to think about areas like sub-Saharan Africa, where, where you know, again, winter salad crops come into the UK uh, from uh, North America. I mean, this, this, is a, this is a global phenomenon around which we're facing into here and it will have implications because governments will come under global pressure to enact laws to change how we do things and we're seeing that already in the UK with the move against away from the uh, basic payment scheme through to the, um, the SFI model and the and the ELMS frameworks which have been presented at the conference today so already we're seeing the government moving to fulfil its obligations under law to reach net zero by 2050 and that will impact farming as it will indeed impact every other area of society as well. Yeah, because that 2050 target for reaching net zero only applies to food grown in the UK, doesn't it? It doesn't apply to food imported into the UK. That's going to cause even more potential problems. This goes back to uh, uh, an international convention that was put in place in 1990. So this isn't just the UK government setting legislation that this is only about the UK. This is internationally. All countries should be taking steps to decarbonise. In fact, and we are seeing that in Europe now as well as in the in the UK. So in theory, our nearest neighbours should also be enacting these changes. But how we get that balance right between food production, food security, environmental um, security is, I think, going to be one of the big um, political hot potatoes, really, of the next sort of five, ten years. You talked in your presentation about the tectonic plates moving. What did you mean by that? Yes, I'm sorry, that, that phrase goes back to an uncle of mine when I was a uh, when I was a boy, who referred to the tectonic plates moving in this context of the Second World War, he fought in the Second World War. I think fundamentally there are some immovable forces. Sorry, immovable is not the right term. There are some significant forces which we cannot change whether those forces will act upon us. And they are coming, and they're coming rapidly at us, and particularly in the force of the forces such as climate change, global population growth, global biodiversity loss. These things are happening, and there will be a response to that. The question is not whether we engage in that response. The question is how do we engage in that response, and how do we engage with it, particularly as farming businesses, in a way which protects the integrity of our business operation whilst also addressing the fundamental risks that we we will need to mitigate for. So that could be in terms of how do we get crops off the off our own off our own landscape, but equally from a societal point of view, how do we sequestrate more carbon in our soils? How do we contribute towards the efforts that are going to be needed to change the way we live and function as a society to mitigate risk? Retailers face their own challenges, don't they? They come under an awful lot of criticism. Uh, for farmers about not paying enough and so on but they face their own challenges don't they yeah absolutely i mean i i I mean i do i think the tensions which exist between farmers and retailers um from you know are well publicized but i think what that those tensions often don't um as they're shown in the media don't often reveal is the fact that actually there's very cooperative relationships in lots of cases between retailers and and farmers as they seek to engage with significant challenges of their own around ensuring availability of supply being able to meet increasing legislative requirements for reporting, being able to demonstrate to the public that they do care and they are taking significant 
steps to try and ensure that their food supply chains are sustainable. I mean, clearly, from the perspective of all the major retailers in the UK, their view will be they need to ensure that the security of their supplies are protected for the, you know, the medium long term. They've got every interest in doing that. And certainly the re- retailers I have met since I've joined Leaf have all been deeply committed to the, the concepts behind sustainable farming and working with farmers to drive positive change. Um, so I think, I, I think sometimes the relationship as publicised is not necessarily reflective of the relationship as it exists in fact. Collaborate and think beyond price. Yes, I think so. And I think that's starting to happen. I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect. There will always, in any, between any commercial relationship, of course, there are always going to be tensions. That's, that's just life. But I do think there is, greater, uh, there is greater interest in collaboration. There's genuine interest in ensuring secure supply chains. We're working now with most of the UK retailers uh, in, in the context of our LeafMark standard. And we, have very, we enjoy very cooperative relationships and they genuinely want to work with farm businesses to affect positive change. You finished your piece today with Farming Matters. So does sustainability, so does the environment, so does conservation. Can the two coexist? Uh, yes. I, my, that, my, my firm view is they can coexist. We need to find systems, management systems, like LeafMark, but Leaf, not just LeafMark, there are many others as well. But we need to find management systems that allow farming, food production, to, be, to happen in a way which promotes uh, sustainable outcomes in terms of both... You know, wildlife biodiversity, soil carbon sequestration, reducing water eutrophication, which is nitrogen runoff into into to rivers, so that we protect we protect aquatic life in freshwater systems. All of these things need to happen simultaneously, and they can happen. You know, what's so heartening for me, being at the conference today, listening to so many farmers, is that it's very clear farmers care. They want to farm in a way that protects the environment, but they need to farm in a way that also protects their business. And those two needs should be complementary and they should be compatible with one another. And that's our job as LEAF and working in partnership with other actors in society to ensure that happens. David Webster, Chief Executive LEAF, thanks for coming up to Lincolnshire today. Hope you've enjoyed the conference and thanks for talking to me on the Farming Programme. It's been an absolute pleasure, Steve. Thank you very much indeed. We'll hear from the remaining speakers at the Lincolnshire Farming Conference next week. Definitely, I could tell you, worth a listen. Links FM Farming. Market reports. Starting with Livestock, Louth Livestock Markets, Ed Middleton. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Steve. This week, we had 418 head sold through Louth Market. Uh, starting off with the prime cattle, prime heifers, all in average this week, 289.6 pence per kilo. And the prime steers, all in average, a fantastic 303.5 pence per kilo. Top spot this week in both the pence per kilo and the price per head and in the heifers and the steers were F. Wallace and Son of Biscothorpe who sold heifers for £1,785 or 299.5 pence per kilo and in the steers £1,866.53 per head or 303.5 pence per kilo. Moving on to the cool cows, topping at 184 pence per kilo for CA Mottram and Sons of Lincoln, uh, which is equivalent to £1,509.20. This week here at Store Cattle Week, uh, we had a super entry of Store Cattle Steers, all in average 1,184.38 pence, and heifers, all in average £956.88. Top spot this week were M&A Everard of Braytoff selling 22-month-old Hereford uh, steers to £1,600. We had a super pen of 10-month-old limousines from G. Russinen Partners of Hatton topping at 1240 
That concludes the cattle. Moving on to the sheep. This week we had an SQQ of 296.62 pence per kilo and an all-in average pounds per head of 131 pounds and 67 pence. Top spot this week goes to regular vendor and market topper FW Roberts and Sons of Rusen, which topped uh, the prime hogs at £164. Uh, that concludes the hogs. Moving on to the cool ewes. This week, an all-in average of £110.61, with a top price of £170. That goes to Shaw Brothers of Binbrook. We sell again on Monday for all prime and cool cattle and all classes of sheep. I'm Edward Middleton, auctioneer at Louth Livestock Market. Thanks, Ed. And with a look at the grey markets, Open Fields' Alice Killam. Morning, Alice. Good morning, Steve. I haven't been in the trading game for all that long, especially in comparison to a few of my colleagues. One of them, who won't mind me saying is in his 27th year of trading, says that bar the wheat market dropping £10 on two consecutive days a few years ago, he's not sure he can remember a run which has been quite so prolonged in its downward spiral. From the first trading day back after Christmas, we've seen steady losses on almost a daily basis. Maybe we leave it there and instead talk about the Six Nations and England's blitz defence. Possibly much more hopeful, but I suspect that won't be what the majority of you are here for. Back to grain then. We had another USDA report on Thursday evening. Unfortunately, this is not likely to halt the decline, but in truth, the damage has already been done this week. We certainly have more important reports to come, namely the 28th of March. We will see a prospective plantings report as well as a quarterly stock report. If there is one which could change the markets in the US, it's likely to be this one. Some of the ending stocks were lower than the trade were predicting. Yes, the USDA recognised that Ukraine is exporting faster, resulting in a lower ending number, but we'll probably need something a little more fundamental. The most interesting numbers are export figures for both the EU and Russia combined, and it shows that we are not going as quick as we need to. We are including Russia, remember. They have cheap wheat to move, certainly, but even they are being kicked into the ground by Ukrainian products or other Eastern European products, which perhaps once were Ukrainian. Until this surplus is gone or we drop lower enough to compete with it, then we're stuck. For the UK, we must now be getting closer to this number. The painful barley market shows that if we drop enough, then we export. Is the same now happening for the wheat? If this calculation is to work, keep an eye on the pound and its relative strength to other currencies. An interest rate drop can't come quick enough for multiple reasons. My take remains the same for the time being. Try and pick a point in the day where things are vaguely positive and quietly keep trading. We're all doing things we don't want to do, but it will be someone who is far braver than me who will sit it out until the real death in the hope of a proper bounce. Sell the spot that you need to, and if you can, trade the new crop carry. Milling wheat and malting barley, just sell it. The carry isn't good enough, in my opinion. By trading a little, we'll just be kicking the can down the road, I appreciate, but we are doing something which in this market is probably the correct call. I, like you, hope for an oversold bounce. If we get one, we must sell into it. It's not going to go up £50. So, some guide prices for this week, circa Friday morning. Feed wheat, March 155 to 165, November 175 to 185, with Group 1 milling premium still holding at 60 to 70 pounds. Feed barley, February 130 to 140, May 135 to 145, and November 140 to 150. All seed rape, February 335 to 340, and June 340 to 345. As usual, please call for firm values. Thanks, Alice. The Farming Programme. 
five-day forecast. Another unsettled week under low pressure. Mostly light, but occasional gusty winds, mainly from the west to southwest. A drier start, but rain, some of it heavy for the second half of the week. Some overnight frosts Sunday and Monday, but warming to daytime highs of 11 or 12 Celsius by midweek. Next week, we're getting close to Tractors Into Schools Week. Will you be taking part? I'm Steve Orchard, back with The Week in Agriculture next Sunday morning from 7 at Links FM, anytime online and podcast. Until then, have a great week. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.